Burn pit exposure continues to have a disastrous impact on the more than 5 million veterans who have been exposed while serving overseas. Finally, help is on the way. On August 10th, President Joe Biden signed into law the PACT Act, which expands eligibility for the benefits veterans can claim because of their burn pit exposure. A historic moment that experts like our guests today say will improve and even save lives. Hello and welcome to 20-Minute Health Talk. I'm David Reich-Hale. Today we speak with Dr. Anthony Sima, Director of Northwell Health's International Center of Excellence in Deployment Health and Medical Geosciences. He is also an investigator at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. Welcome, Dr. Sima. Thank you, David, for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. Uh, Dr. Sima was at the White House on August 10th to watch the long-awaited legislation be signed into law. And we'll talk more about your experiences that day later in the show. But first, tell us a little more about how you got involved in this issue and how that applies to your role now. Sure, David. Initially, um, when I was chief of the allergy section at the Northport VA in Long Island, um, between 1998 and 2003, the majority of my patients were 80-year-old Caucasian men in wheelchairs with oxygen. My oldest patient was 94 years old, and he bombed Salzburg, Austria, during World War II. Oh. So the composition of the patients dramatically changed after we invaded Iraq in 2003, and troops came home in the summer of 2004. In fact, when we you know walked in uh, in the summer of 2004, the entire waiting room was full of young women and men in uniforms who were active duty, and they all wanted to get back into the fight. So I knew something was different. These are all young kids who signed up post 9-11. So I knew there was something up. In fact, our medical student, who was actually planning on dropping out and going to medical uh, to business school, said, we should study this, Dr. Simon. Now he's a pulmonary professor at the University of California, San Francisco. The burn pits, we could talk a little bit more about what burn pits are and how do they affect those exposed to them. Okay, so David, when there is a war, when the forces invade, uh, the U.S. has what's called an expeditionary force. So for an initial invasion, you don't have to adhere to EPA rules, so you don't need to use incinerators to burn your trash. So a burn pit is essentially a garbage fire. So imagine our hospital throwing all the garbage out in the big pit and lighting on fire with jet fuel called JP-8, which isn't even just plain old jet fuel, it's special military jet fuel. And the problem is that when you burn with jet fuel in open air, it's actually burning at a lower temperature than that from an incinerator, and it generates more particles. And in addition, it depends on what you're burning. If you're burning plastics, it releases toxins called N-hexane, which are neurotoxins, for example. What, what's being thrown in there? Everything? Everything. So medical waste, plastic, uh, munitions, computers, um, literally everything. And just set on fire to get rid of it. Set on fire to get rid of it because for security reasons, when you move on to another location, you don't want the enemy to know what you have. Um, however, after a certain point in time, when does an expeditionary force become a permanent force? So when I first learned about burn pits in 2009, we initially, between 2004 and 2009, we thought it was all sandstorms. And it is, that is part of the problem. But um, in 2009, we learned that in Balad, which is a 10 acre, um, uh, which had a 10 acre burn pit, they were burning trash 24 hours a day, 365 days a year between 2003 and 2009. It was this big, you know, inferno. 
And at the same time, they had an incinerator that wasn't turned on. They had a Kentucky Fried Chicken. They had a subway. They had an in-ground swimming pool and a movie theater. So I think if you can get subway, then you should be able to get an incinerator. How big are these burn pits? So in Balad, for example, for 100,000 troops at a time, which is essentially a city, uh, it was 10 acres. People are just breathing this in. The military folks are breathing this in. Right. And when did it become sort of evident that there might be an issue with this? In 2003... Lieutenant Colonel Darren Curtis wrote a memo saying, hey, you know, we shouldn't burn or trash. It's not good for health. Plus, we can't even see when we land the planes. So I uh, basically wrote down everything I learned at the Senate Testimony Committee and wrote a book called Rogue B. B-E-E stands for Bioenvironmental Engineer. Um, and it's about Lieutenant Cur Cur uh, Curtis and what he tried to do to prevent um, the burn pits from happening. But he was overruled. Um, and now we know that he was right. How long did it take for some other folks in the military and in government to sort of appreciate that maybe he wasn't so wrong? Even two years ago, the VA's website said that it's ongoing as a study and there's no conclusive proof that you can get sick from the burn pits. And it's really the legislation that propelled this forward that changed the VA's mind. And you're treating patients post-deployment. Right. So we have patients come to our center from all over the United States. They come from Virginia and Illinois and Michigan and West Virginia and Pennsylvania and Florida. And um, they get a comprehensive history and evaluation. And sometimes they will have to go for an ultimate uh, lung biopsy. What symptoms and di diagnosis are you seeing? So usually they say, I used to be a runner. Now I can't run. And the problem is that if you used to run 20 miles a day, if you still run three miles a day, what's the big deal? Well, they know that that's a significant decrease and it feels different. Their body feels different. Okay. So the next question I was going to ask is what do healthy pre-burn pit lungs look like compared to lungs of a veteran exposed to burn pits when they come home? It sounds like without sort of special technologies, you may not see some of the changes. You're in general correct that in often you may not detect some of these changes with routine testing. You know, if, if you're grossly damaged, of course you should see it. But sometimes uh, diseases such as constricted bronchiolitis are beyond the resolution of a CAT scan, and the only way to diagnose it is to get a piece of tissue. However, with our sophisticated technology like impulse oscillometry, we can tell if the distal areas are narrowed and fixed and not reversible. And Dr. Sima, for the listener, I just wanted to define constrictive bronchiolitis. It's a lung infection that many veterans have developed as a result of their time in service. The condition is very difficult to diagnose and extremely uncommon. When we talk about the impact on veterans and these screenings, what are you finding? We check for metals. Um, we work with geologists. You know, most doctors don't know any geologists. Um, the only reason I know geologists is because my kids used to go to daycare with a bunch of geologists, and we don't cook, so we go to their barbecues. And at one of these barbecues, they were saying, hey, you know, there's a light at Brookhaven National Lab, and, you know, they do it for physics, but I bet if you shined it into that piece of lung you're talking about, you could detect metals. And we had a soldier who was on prednisone steroids for six months without improvement, so I said, let's take his lung over there, and we found titanium stuck or bound to iron in fixed mathematical ratios, one part titanium, seven parts iron, all over the lung. And the geology colleagues tell me this is rare in nature, means nobody's ever seen it before. 
and it's suggesting an anthropogenic or man-made source. So this guy inhaled a burned Humvee or a blown-up improvised explosive device. Um, so he's got metals in his lungs. And, and that soldier, in fact, was part of the laundry staff in Balaz, so he got whatever was on everybody's uniform. Okay. And that was because of what happened to him, or was that burn pit related? It could have been both? It was both. It's, it's staggering. Yeah, yeah. It, it's scary because... We are seeing diseases that are emerging that will, that have a latency, meaning we're not going to see them for decades later. For example, if you inhaled a burned tank that's asbestos-lined, you may not get asbestos-related lung disease for another 20 years. Um, what we've learned recently is we found bone in the lung. Who is bone in the lung? Nobody is bone in the lung. That's extremely rare. It's almost like World Trade Center dust. If you inhale dust or smoke, the plume can may have a pH. And... We believe that if you inhale something that's alkaline, then it'll change the calcium that's normally in your lung and actually turn into bone, which is kind of scary and very rare. Is there, is there anything you'd recommend to these soldiers? Let's, let's say you're a soldier who isn't showing any signs, but they were near burn pits for years. Right. Would you recommend anything to them? Absolutely. So there are two things. One is there's an open-air burn pit registry, which is a law, um, meaning the, the VA has to record that information. That's important to register at your local VA. And then two, go to a place like Northwell's International Center of Excellence in Deployment Health and Medical Geosciences because we have the sophisticated kind of equipment and the knowledge base and resources to help diagnose some of these patients. And I think this is analogous to the World Trade Center disaster. The reason we knew that firefighters had their lungs shrink five years post 9-11 was because they had serial breathing tests every year. And it's important to document where you are now so you have a baseline to compare against what may happen down the road. Do you think the word's getting out to them? Um, I think people should be learning about the PACT Act. You know, it was on national TV, but, you know, like a lot of things, it takes a while to disseminate the information clearly. And I'm glad that Northwell is doing this podcast today so we can at least uh, tell the pr providers and the patients in our area, you know, that we have these resources available. Well, let's talk more about the PACT Act. Some good news. We're, we're talking about more than just expanded eligibility for VA services. Uh, the, the act will also strengthen toxic exposure research and improve care for veterans exposed to toxins. And as a researcher, how big of a difference does all this make? I think, one, it's acknowledging that this is real um, after all this time. In fact, as you mentioned, this is the largest increase in the VA budget. It's hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, so it will be tr a, a transformative change to the VA, the way the VA decides on which diseases are eligible, the way the VA will handle crises in the future, the way they will um, build more facilities and staff the facilities, and even how they interact with non-VA partners like Northwell Health. And going back to the signing of the PACT Act, take us through that day because you were there. It was a really cool day. So we went into the White House. It, it was really heartwarming. I've, I saw probably six of my patients there because we get patients from all over the U.S., from Ohio and et cetera. So a lot of hugs, um, you know, a lot of photos and a lot of relief because, you know, we've been doing this for years. In the days leading up to the voting and the passage of this act, the families and veterans were actually camping outside the Capitol in 90 degree heat for about four days. 
and um, Senator Kirsten, uh, Kristen Gillibrand was actually um, uh, opening up the bathroom door to get him in the Capitol because security, because there's no place to go to the restroom. And President Biden was shipping pizzas to these people. <laughs> so it was finally the, you know, the the end result of all the lobbying that got it done. And it's an example of, you know, bipartisan issue where you can nonviolently do something, you know, and change America. Are you involved in any research related to burn pits? Yeah. So currently um, our last paper uh, accepted for publication in scientific reports, a nature journal shows that we could detect reduced maximal expiratory pressure. So basically we're saying that the muscles of the chest wall, like the diaphragm, are weaker in soldiers exposed to burn pits. And what that could mean is that's an early warning sign that something's wrong. We think it's probably related to the fact that if it's 130 degrees in the desert and everybody's burning plastic water bottles, it releases a neurotoxin called N-hexane. And this is an early sign. It's a similar test, this maximal expiratory pressure that you would see in early Lou Gehrig's disease. So um, we think that these soldiers inhaled um, a lot of plastic. Uh, the other thing that we've learned about recently with the impulse oscillometry test I described is that we, we know that a lot of them all, almost all have narrow distal airways. So pretty much if you're near that plume for a year, you had some damage. You definitely inhaled something. And then, as we mentioned, the, the lung biopsies. The lung biopsies are really telling uh, because we can see burned particles. We can see these black carbonaceous, you know, charcoal-like particles. We can see the chemicals uh, called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons in them. We can de detect the temperature. We can see the dust samples th themselves. And all of this duplicates what we do when we give it down the airway of a mouse. So we have dust samples from Iraq and Afghanistan and compared it to a titanium mine in Montana and dust from a Camp Pendleton military base in California and inert dust, safe dust from Georgia. And this worst dust was actually the Iraq dust that induced an inflammation in the lung. You were able to compare the various types of dusts and it was clear that that was the worst. That's the worst one. It's sharp. It's small enough to inhale. It's got metal in it. It's got burned particles in it. It's got these chemicals in it. We can calculate the temperature at which it was at before it was inhaled. So, yeah, it's not a good. And, and our data are identical to that of Dr. Robert Millett from Vanderbilt University, who published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In fact, he sent some of his patients to us at Northwell. He sent some biopsies to us. So there was cross-fertilization in terms of, you know, this intellectual discourse in terms of this research. So, you know, we're not isolated when we, we show these findings. In fact, um, on this latest paper, I think we had probably 12 different research groups help contribute to this paper. Across the United States? Across the United States. In addition to helping veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan wars, the bill will also expand coverage of her illnesses potentially linked to the Agent Orange herbicide used in the Vietnam War. What is Agent Orange and how has that impacted veterans? So Agent Orange was, is called a uh, defoliant. That's what they used to get rid of the jungle in the Vietnam War in the 1960s. Um, but it's a very toxic chemical. In fact, that's not the only color. I've since learned there's like Agent Green, Agent Purple. There are different types of colors of chemicals that they used. And they're very toxic. Um, and it's a shame that even in 2019... You know, about two, a couple of years ago, they finally added hypertension to one of the, the diseases covered under uh, 
a presumption for Agent Orange because it hardens the arteries. So there's a statistically significant difference among older people who were exposed to Agent Orange with hypertension versus those who were not. Um, and we don't want that to happen again. So the advantage of the PACT Act is they will change the rules and regulations regarding presumptions so you can add diseases more quickly um, to uh, exposure during war. This wasn't your first trip to the nation's capital. Since 2009, you've testified three times before government committees about the danger and effects of burn pits, including, I think it was in March of this year. Right. So, you know, we talked at that committee hearing uh, for the Senate Armed Services Committee about uh, having the DOD report exposures better to the VA. And, uh, you know, nowadays the technology is improved so that you can have wearable air pollution monitors on your belt. Um, in fact, uh, one grant that I'm on, a Department of Defense grant, uh, allows you to wear something the size of a beeper and it can count the particles in the air, um, so you know how many dust particles in the air, but it also can measure uh, uh, chemical warfare agents, like you know if there's any uh, sarin gas, so you know where the, if you're the general, you can move the soldiers out of harm's way, or at least know they were exposed or get, get ready to treat them. In addition, we proposed independent academic centers of excellence, just like ours at Northwell, partnering with the VA, uh, because you're not always going to have expertise at you know community hospitals that are part of the VA system. That's just a reality. Um, in, for example, Montana, they don't have what we have here. What prompted this particular testimony? Well, um, I think it was it, it was years of wor work lobbying when we partnered with uh, Rosie and then eventually with John Stewart it was more years of lobbying but finally uh John Stewart actually mentioned to some of the senators you should get Dr. Simmons to testify before this particular committee and this was the right committee because they're in charge of the money <laughs> so uh it, it, you fi we finally get to speak to the people in charge and and I think that's what really convinced a lot of senators, even though we had prepared a bound publication with my students uh, that was distributed throughout Congress. Um, but uh, I think, you know, when it finally gets down to, you know, face-to-face -face testimony, that's when they really decide to listen. And you mentioned John Stewart. Of course, he had a big part in the push to get the PACT Act passed. He has had a similar impact on the conversation around federal funding for health care benefits for 9-11 first responders under the Zadroga Act. How close are you to his movement and his group? Uh, I was an advisor for his first episode on The Problem with Jon Stewart. And of course, that's his podcast called The Problem with Jon Stewart, whose first episode was actually a deep dive into this very topic. He's clearly very passionate about this. Where do you trace your passion to this? So in 2004, when we first saw these soldiers, I really felt bad that we really couldn't do anything for it, so we really wanted to study it. Um, and I've seen soldiers die. As I mentioned, one of the soldiers had two lung transplants and died. I've seen soldiers who've been debilitated and they can't work. Um, you shouldn't come back with being short of breath from something that we can abate or prevent. Dr. Simba, this was great. Thank you. Thank you, David, for having me here. No, it's a pleasure. It's all ours. Uh, thank you for joining us on 20 Minute Health Talk. And to you, the listener, thanks for tuning in. I'm David Reich-Hale. Have a great day. Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today 
Subscribe to 20 Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.